So today we're celebrating Opposite Day. Um, I don't know if you guys ever had like theme days in school, but in my school we always had, in like uh, middle school there was Opposite Day, where you come to school and like you're wearing your shorts inside out and you've got your hat backwards or inside out and all your shirts are turned around and everything. Anyone else been to any sort of celebration of Opposite Day that they <laughs> recall or... <laughs> Yeah, Garib, yeah, Savannah, both. What's that? An opposite party day? How did you make it opposite? Yeah. Oh, you had the cake first and then the dinner later? Nice. What's that? What did you say? That's right, everyone was frowning and having a bad time. I was like, this unhappy birthday to you, Garib. <laughs> Unhappy birthday to you. Unhappy birthday to that's right to me. That's right. Opposite day. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Did you give everyone gifts? Yeah. I think you need to have like another another attempt at this. It sounds like there's some things that you maybe didn't consider. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so opposite day. Um, that's what we're celebrating today. And I'm sure that she, it was obvious when we were reading the scripture, when Christy was reading, you were like, oh, this is totally, this is about opposite day. This is exactly what's going to happen. But it's really true. That's, um, that's what happens throughout this text. Throughout this whole passage, the opposite of what should happen, happens. And so I'm going to run through them, uh, you know, as, as briefly again as a preacher can. But uh, there are a number of opposites that happen, and I've I've put them in the guide there just so we can you can track along with where I'm where I'm going. Um, but the first one we see is in verse 26, and it's Simon. Simon is from Cyrene, and if you know, Cyrene is uh, the northern part of Libya. So he's come. He either has has immigrated and, and is living in Jerusalem, or he has come with the express purpose of being there for uh, the Passover. So that's probably 800 to 1,500 miles, depending on which part of northern, uh, northern Libya that, that, uh, that Cyrene was in. Um, it was a very long distance. So he's come from a long distance to celebrate in Jerusalem. And you might not, have, not think about this. I didn't really think about this before sort of studying this text out. But there's, like, there's a lot of other things going on besides Jesus being crucified in Jerusalem. They're like, there's a celebration of Passover. People are meeting family that they haven't seen in a long time. There's all sorts of other things happening. And we see that that is true in the first verse here. It says in verse 26, as they led Jesus away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country. He wasn't going to go watch this crucifixion. He was going in with a different purpose. But again, we see that God is doing something in people to shift their direction. And that's what happens to Cyrene, or to Simon at the very start. He was going into the city to be with friends, to continue celebrating the Passover, but he now turns around and goes out with the procession to be carrying Christ's cross to the place of the skull. It's interesting that that happened to Simon because uh, we know from Mark that Simon is the father of Rufus and Alexander. And if you study that out a little further, you see in Romans 16 that Paul writes a letter to the Romans. Romans 16, verse 13, he says this about Rufus. Greet Rufus, 
chosen in the Lord, also his mother, that'd be Simon's wife, who has been a mother to me as well. So this man, this Simon of Cyrene, had come to celebrate a Passover, but his life was turned totally opposite of what he expected, and he went out to celebrate with Christ, and his family became a celebration of the Lord, uh, a, a family of the Lord, ones chosen in him. So that's the beginning of our opposite. Simon turns in an opposite direction. The second thing we see is in uh, verses 27 to 31, and this is the women. They're, they're in despair over Jesus that he's going to be crucified. And they're wailing and mourning this, uh, the death of Christ. But the thing is, they, they have it wrong. They aren't mourning the proper thing. They should be mourning something else rather than the death of Christ. Jesus confronts them and turns to them and says, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. And then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. Christ says, You're despairing over the opposite thing that you should be despairing over. You should be despairing for yourselves. Because the reality of what is happening that day is that Christ, the Son of God, the King of Kings, is being crucified. And it's not something to be mourned. The thing to be mourned is those who have rejected him and the judgment that is ahead. Six times before in the book of Luke, Jesus has uh, spoken of the fall of Jerusalem. And again, this is another Another allusion to that, that when you reject the, the plan of God, there, there is a, a coming judgment. And, and that's what we see happen in, in historical accounts in 70 AD. Jerusalem fell. They had turned their back on the plan of God, and, and God came through the Romans in, in judgment against them in, in 70 AD. We're thankful that he continues to love his children and continues to extend opportunity and grace to them in spite of the history of their ancestors. He does the same to us. It's a beautiful thing. But in this moment, the thing that Jesus tells them to mourn is not Jesus' death, because Jesus' death, as we know, is a beautiful thing. He is willingly giving himself up that we might be freed and restored. So the women are in despair over the opposite thing. They need to be weeping over the city of Jerusalem, this city that has rejected its Savior. So the first thing we see is that Simon turns in an opposite direction. The second thing we see is that the women are, are uh, despairing over the opposite thing that they should be. The third thing we see is that something we looked at a lot last week, Jesus is receiving the opposite sentence that he should be receiving. Last week we saw how Herod and how Pilate all testified that that Christ had done nothing to deserve death. He was completely innocent. Yet he's being slain. He's receiving the exact opposite sentence than what he deserves. Not only is he being slain, but he's now taking the place of, of a murderer on the cross of one who hated his fellow man so much that he 
that he killed him. And Jesus is the one who loves mankind so much that he gave himself to die. He's receiving the opposite sentence. We see that this has been the plan of God for uh, since the beginning, really. In Genesis three fourteen and 15, we, we read that the plan of God was to restore humanity was to send one that would crush the schemes of, of Satan. It says in uh, chapter 3 of Genesis and 14 through 15, the Lord God said to the serpent who had deceived Adam and Eve, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you should go, and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The fact that Christ is crucified at at the place known as the skull sends us back to this moment when when it was prophesied that, that one would come of the seed of woman whose heel would be bruised, yet he would crush the serpent's skull, his head. And that's exactly what happens when Christ received the sentence of crucifixion, is that he's taken out to the place of the skull. Here we see him giving his life in the plan of God, that we might be restored to God the Father. We see he's receiving the opposite treatment of what he should be receiving. At his feet, uh, before the cross, there are those who are just casting lots to divide the garments of Jesus. Jesus had been given royal garments, ones that, uh, in truth, he deserved royal garments because he's the king. He's the anointed one of God. But they were given to him out of a mocking attitude by the leaders. And to add insult to injury, they, they are here before him as he's crucified, gambling for who gets to take these, these garments. It's the exact opposite treatment of what Christ deserved. Another opposite that we see is that the leaders have the opposite reaction than what they should have. Instead of mocking Jesus, they, they ought to be praising him as the Son of God, as the King of Kings. But instead we hear them mocking over and over. In verses 35 to 38, we saw this. He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen one. Mocking words of the leaders. They don't remember three years of ministry where Christ went from town to town to town to town, healing the sick, raising the dead. They seem to forget his authority and his teaching. And here they've placed him on the cross. And they're mocking him as he hangs there. Asking for one more sign, one more sign. The same is true for the soldiers that are there. They also mock him, coming up and offering him sour wine. They say, 
if you're the king of the Jews, then save yourself. If, if you're a king, well, kings don't die on crosses, so save yourself. The mocking comes forward. Pilate had joined into this and had had the inscription written above him that said, this is the king of the Jews. Not out of honor or respect, but again out of mocking. And The amazing thing is that their claims on him to prove himself are claims that are true about himself. He is the chosen one of God. He is the king of the Jews. He's the king of all mankind. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He's given himself on the cross. The leaders have the opposite reaction than what they should have. On top of that, there's, there's two criminals sitting next to him. And the first criminal has, again, the opposite response to the situation than he should. He's found to be unrepentant, yet continuing to mock Christ. He joins with the crowd and says, Are you not the Christ? Then save yourselves and us. You hear that? He, he isn't repentant over the things he did. He just sees an opportunity to say, Well, perhaps you are, and if you are, get me off this cross too. Show your power in that way. He's not repentant over his guilt, the things that he's done. The fact is the, the first criminal was rightly accused and, and rightly sentenced for his crimes, just as the second one was. But there's a difference between the first criminal and the second criminal, and we'll see that next. Verse 40 says, The other criminal rebuked the first criminal, saying, Do you not fear God? You are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we justly, you're receiving the due rewards for your deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. The second criminal recognizes that Christ is innocent and that he's being slain. He also recognizes that he is a sinner and he's repentant of the things that he's done. He says to Christ, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus returns to him and says, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The first criminal had the opposite response to Jesus than he should have, but the second criminal received the opposite gift than he should have from Jesus. The criminal had, had lived a, a, a life of crime that had ended up with him on the cross, being rightly as he said in his own words, justly receiving the due reward for his deeds. Yet here he receives mercy because he recognizes that Jesus is who he said he was. He is the anointed king of kings. He is the Christ. He is this man's only hope. This really challenged me. I think... Um, 
you know, a lot of times you, know, you may hear about people having like deathbed confessions and, and things. And you think, well, you know, they're just putting their hope in uh, just something at, at the end and saying, well, you know, uh, hopefully he's real and, and hopefully he's true. And I'll just, I'll just, yeah, I'll trust him. The fact is God works in deathbed convention, con, uh, confessions. It's true. We see it in this picture here. As a man is hanging on the cross mere hours from dying, he turns to Jesus in genuine faith and, and Christ recognizes and says, today you will be with me in paradise. That's hard for us to, to reconcile in our minds because we like this uh, order of uh, this hierarchy of deeds where we can say, well, I was really good and this guy was sort of good and this guy was really bad and so he's, he's the least deserving of this grace. And the fact is that's not how Christ sees it at all. He says, he sees it very black and white actually. He says, no, actually, all of humanity are, are sinners. All of them are in need of God and all of them, if they would repent at any moment in their life, they could receive this gift of salvation. Even if you're hanging on a Roman cross next to Christ and you confess to him, you are the Christ. Save me. He extends his mercy to that individual. See, at the cross, we're, we're just like these criminals that are, that are hanging there next to Jesus. We're deserving of the penalty that Jesus took on our behalf. We, we all, as, as Christians, can testify to that fact that there's nothing within us that, that would earn us the presence of God. We receive it by grace. And we see that in the cross. It's the opposite of what we deserve. This whole day that, well, that we see in this text tonight is, is it's opposite day, like I said. Everything is flipped around and Jesus is doing an amazing work through it. He is in control and his authority is going forward and his kingdom is going forward. Even in this moment that looked like weakness, he was giving great strength. Not just to those that were there, but to all humanity. It's amazing the the words that he says as as he is hung on the cross. Back in verses 32 to 34, you know, they take him down to the place of the skull and they put Jesus up on the cross next to these two criminals. And as they're sitting there, he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. See, the cross, we receive forgiveness and grace. It's the opposite of what we deserve again. So we just have a few things to, to dwell on as we reflect on this passage, really. And they're all center around the grace that we receive at the cross, the forgiveness that we receive there. So the the first is this. God forgives those who repent. At the cross, all humanity is extended the opportunity to receive the grace of God. And Jesus is sufficient for all to be ushered into the kingdom of God. But only those who repent and place their trust in Christ will receive him. 
We see that very clearly between the two criminals. The first criminal convicted justly a sinner on the cross, rejects Christ and instead mocks him and seeks to save his own skin through Jesus' abilities. But the second one recognizes his state, recognizes that he is justly punished, and places his trust in the only one that is able to save him, not in this life, but in the life to come, Jesus Christ. He says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus says, truly, today you will be with me in paradise. God forgives those who repent. There is no amount of sin that you could have that is too much for Christ to extend his grace and mercy to you. That is one of the biggest hang-ups that people have in coming to God. They say, he doesn't know what I have done. He doesn't know how dark my heart is. He doesn't know the thoughts I have had about my friends, about my family, about my spouse. He doesn't know those things. But he does. (laughs) He does, and he loves in spite of it. And he wants to restore, and he wants to forgive even those who are the quote, worst of sinners. Paul calls himself the worst of sinners. The chief of sinners, he calls himself. Yet Christ extends his grace to even the chief of sinners. So we see that God forgives any who would repent, recognize their sin, and turn to Christ. Acts 2, 38, Peter is preaching to those around at Pentecost, and he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent, repent, and be baptized. The first thing we see is that God forgives those who repent. The second thing we see is about forgiveness. There's two things that we have to grapple with, and we looked at it last week, a couple weeks ago, when we prayed, just spent time praying together. It's the Lord's Prayer that um, we forgive those as much as we've been forgiven. So the first thing we have to do is uh, accept God's forgiveness for us. Recognize that, that he will forgive those who repent and place our trust in him. The second thing is that we have to forgive ourselves. Oftentimes we uh, accept the fact that we're forgiven, but don't actually forgive ourselves for our own sin. We don't walk in the identity that Christ has given us as a result of his uh, sacrifice. And it inhibits our ability to serve him, but Christ speaks of us. We've, we've hit this passage maybe, uh, you know, a dozen times or more over the past six months. Second uh, Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We have to forgive ourselves and walk in the identity that Christ has given us. God forgives those who repent. And so we have to accept that we are forgiven and walk in that righteousness. We have to forgive ourselves. And the third thing that I want to take from this is that we have to forgive others just as God forgave us. 
Forgiveness isn't just for us to receive, it's also for us to extend. Like, like we said, we, we talked about that a couple weeks ago when we prayed together. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. The more you hold on to the sins that have been committed against you, the longer you will remain unhealed from those wounds the sooner that you are able to forgive those who have wronged you as Christ has done for you, the sooner you will be healed. We have to forgive those who have sinned against us. God forgives any who repent of all things, and we have to act in the same manner, extending the same grace to those around us. We can't be like the man who was forgiven a great debt and then went out and tried to charge another with, with his debt. Now we have to extend the forgiveness that God has given us to those around us. Again, that's like exactly what we were talking about earlier. Christianity is not about uh, something that ends with us getting. Christianity starts in a person when that person is changed and extends that mercy and grace out to others. It doesn't end with us, it flows through us. That's the beauty of God's plan in establishing the body of Christ. It doesn't end with us as an end user of of the goods. God gives us goods and blessings and gifts that we might extend his sacrificial love out to those around us. So God forgives those who repent. We have to accept that we are forgiven And we have to forgive those who have wronged us. It's all the opposite of of what we would think. We think that coming to the Lord is about getting ourselves right. And that's part of it. That's, That's part of it. That's not the whole truth. Coming to the Lord is about being restored to relationship with God and then extending his mercy out. Shouldn't be concentrated on what we should get from Christianity. We should be concentrated on what we give as a result of being a follower of Christ. It doesn't end with us. You see, when it ends with us, we are always going to be about appeasing a God, about keeping up the right standing with him. And That becomes us just trying to fulfill ourselves through appeasement, through appeasement of a God, through appeasement of others, through being a good person. We're concentrated on what we're getting and how we're operating. That's not how God intended us to live. We'll never find fulfillment if our actions are based on appeasing someone or something. So we have to see this work that God has done on the cross. He's done a beautiful thing. He's transforming lives even here at the feet of the cross. We'll see next week as we uh, look at the death of Jesus that a soldier's life is turned around, that one of the leaders of of Judaism comes in and recognizes that Christ is the Messiah. We see in Simon too that he is transformed and he he was once just going to celebrate in in religious effort, but he was turned around to be a leader in the church Christ is turning us in the opposite direction of what our natural inhibitions direct us toward. 
It's opposite day, and we're celebrating that God has a plan that is better than the plan we have for ourselves. Amen. Amen. God, we thank you that you came the way you did. God, looking at the book of Luke, we see over and over how opposite you operate compared to the world. When you were working through John the Baptist, you list out in the book of Luke all the things that are going on around the world. And I just love this. You say that here a, a Roman ruler is, is working and Annas and Caiaphas are ruling as high priests and there are certain government leaders that, uh, that are ruling over the territory. You give a big list of a few verses and then at the end of it you say, and in the desert... The word of the Lord came to John the Baptist. All these things are going around in our world. It looks like uh, the power of the world is going to just oppress all mankind. But Lord, you are speaking in the desert to your people, revealing your mysteries and your truths to us. Mary thought that when she was told that she would bear the Son of God, that she would be bearing him in some palace and that he would rise in some pomp and circumstance, but when you came during a census when she had to be in a stable out in the middle of nowhere, you operate opposite of the way the world thinks it should operate. Thank you, God, because if we were left to the way we operate, we would just be appeasing others and appeasing a God. But instead, you knew we couldn't do that, that it wouldn't satisfy, that it wouldn't work because we're not able to accomplish the holiness you require. And you sent your son, Jesus, we might have forgiveness in him, that we might be the righteousness of God, that we might be so full of your grace and your mercy that no matter what a person would do to us, we would say before them, honestly, I forgive you. Go and sin no more. I forgive you. Help us, God, have that sacrificial love that you've demonstrated for us. Lord, you are worthy of our lives. You are worthy of our worship. God, we thank you for this time that you've given us to set aside in worship of Christ, that he would be exalted. And it's in his name I pray. Amen. Amen.